to. Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina, or maybe today we should call it Galita Talks because I'm here with Galita City Councilman James Cariaco. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Am, am I in the right place? I thought this was Galita Talks. <laughs> am, am I on the well, wrong podcast? You're part of the future, you know, brand expansion, James. So I'll, I'll use this podcast for marketing purposes when I approach new territories. No, um, you know, James, I'm really excited to have you on because you're actually a person of of many talents and many hats and I've known you for what, 20 years, probably going back a long time to your political consultant days. And uh, I want to talk to you a little bit today about the Santa Barbara City Council election and maybe get you to sort of be a pundit for a few minutes about what's going on there. I know that you're very in touch and tuned, involved, you know a lot of the players there, and uh, I think your perspective is valuable and sort of how things are going to shape up. And then, of course, I'd like to dive into the state of Goleta. You're a Goleta City Council member, and Goleta, of course, um, is is still a relatively new city, and it's really cool to sort of watch city, uh, watch Goleta continue to grow and develop and see it uh, grow into its current state, which is, you know, quite an amazing little community, if I may say so myself. So Galita turns uh, 20 years old next February. Wow, that's so amazing. I remember I have a story on the front page of the news press, <laughs> you know, back then, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of stories about Galita and old Morgan Green. You remember Morgan Green? She's I do. She used to cover Galita really well for mm-hmm. for the news press. And um, yeah, I, remember, yeah, I remember that news press edition very well. They have a copy of it on the wall at City Hall. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting because the day, the day that Galita became a city, was uh, at least in, from an elect- electoral standpoint, not a incorporation standpoint, uh, was also the day that I, um, you know, my the first campaign I ever officially managed uh, was successful. Roger Horton was elected that night along with E.F. Alconi yeah. and uh, Baba Tunde Foliemi and uh, Dan Secord yeah. uh, to the city council and uh, Marty Bloom became mayor um, in Santa Barbara. But at the same time, there was this election out in Galita where I did not yet live and that was the night that Galita became a city. So there's some some continuity and some kind of parallel narrative there. Yeah, and I think I, my story on the front page that day is the one of the Santa Barbara election. I think um, you didn't work with Baba Tunde that election, did you? Or you just, no, uh, yeah. Tim Tim Allison managed that campaign. Tim Allison, I remember Tim. Yeah, yeah. It's so it's so funny, and this is a good transition to, to Santa Barbara. Why don't we just start there, and then we'll go into. Galita and your, you know, real, real job expertise, but it's a good transition because, you know, I remember Baba Tunde and, you know, he was the first uh, African-American on the Santa Barbara city council. And he kind of got lucky to some degree because Marty got elected mayor. And so it opened up this other position and then he went in there. And I just remember that, that Baba Tunde was the kind of guy who like he walked down the street and this is not exaggeration. And, and, and he'd see people and they, like hug him, you know, and he would shake their hands. And he could have conversations pretty much in the West side, the East side, certainly downtown with everybody, you know, and they all kind of knew who he was. Like, that's Baba Tunde, or that's Baba, you know, they would call him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, he's running for council. No way, you know, like he's the activist, you know, he's not going to, you know, he's actually going to go beyond the government side. And 
you know, I don't think he ran the, the greatest campaign, but he was so popular, you know, that he was able to win and uh, get, get, get elected. And he sort of, uh, you know, I don't know how much, I don't remember much money he raised and all that, but it's just sort of interesting. You know, we're talking about potentially history again, you know, in this Santa Barbara city council election in a couple of ways. And just like back then, Baba Tunde was, you know, he was the top of the town, like, wow, you know, is he going to do that? Um, and of course he's no longer with us, but you know, I would love to, <laughs> he'd be a guest on my podcast frequently if he were still here. <laughs> you remember he, Baba he, Tunde? You have any thoughts on him? He, he would be a really useful voice right now. Uh, mm-hmm. he, um, he was someone who, um, you know, really came from the community and really always kept uh, the community front in mind in um, all of his decisions. And, you know, he was someone that had a really strong sense of what the community wanted and he would be their advocate. And so I remember he used to sometimes be criticized for um, not embracing other perspectives because up to that point, um, the perspective that was mostly heard um, in Santa Barbara was the perspective of the business community, um, the perspective in particular of the downtown business community. And so when he um, was technically appointed to the city council as the top vote getter of the remaining candidates, um, because Marty Bloom promoted from city council member to mayor um, and you know, promoted for the final two years of her term, um, that was really a political earthquake um, in this town. And the composition of that new council, Baba Tunde, uh, E.F. Falcone, uh, Roger Horton, um, they, brought, um, they brought a different perspective um, to the, the city council. They um, were candidates that were, um, you know, they, they were not necessarily completely aligned with the local Democratic Party at that time, but they, um, you know, they really embraced Democratic uh, values. And they, they were people who could, um, who could really um, balance that, that, you know, the perspective of business with the perspective of working families. And so you, um, you started to see, you know, different kinds of conversations about housing, about, um, about renters at that time. And, you know, there weren't always the kind of uh, victories that we've had more recently on those issues, but uh, a lot of conversations started with Baba Tunde and some of the others that were uh, elected in 2001, back when, back when I was kind of a hired gun. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that ushered in the the Josh E. Falcone years, you know, which was about you know eight years of um, shall we say uh, fun, uh, entertainment, and uh, um, well, there's a lot of ways we can describe it. But I remember, you know, actually, and I look back now, those were the good old days. <laughs> like quite honestly, like that was a strong council like that council was really good and they of course had their issues and marty and ia famously had their issues but they were they came to tuesday prepared and ready to work and ready to work on behalf of the city and of course they're politicians they had their own interests but um it was it was i never left a meeting thinking wow one person participated at this meeting today. <laughs> like, you know, I, it happens today. You're like one person talked. I can't believe no one else talked. So, you know, it's they definitely sort- had, they definitely had different leadership styles <laughs> and uh, depending upon uh, your perspective, I mean, leadership is such a subjective thing anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, they both had very different leadership styles. Yeah. So, so here we are. Um, maybe we're going to see another ushering in of this new era. We don't know. We've got, 
Mayor Kathy Murillo, who is uh, facing a significant challenge from, I guess, multiple fronts. You know, we've got uh, Randy Rouse, a longtime incumbent council member who has decided to run for mayor. And he's he's got a ton of money, more than 250 grand. I haven't looked last few days, but it's a lot of money. And uh, he's out there and he, he seems to have a lot of support from a faction or a portion of the community. And then you've got Kathy, of course, who's trying to get reelected. Uh, she's she's certainly objectively lost support from where she was four years ago in terms of some endorsements. You know, we don't really know like people on the ground till election day. Um, and then you've got James Joyce, who's trying to sort of upset everything here. And, uh, you know, he, he's he's got some key endorsements and he would be the first African-American mayor on the city council, you know, if he, if he got elected. Um, he doesn't have as much money, but there certainly seems to be a little bit of interest in him and in his campaign. And you got Deborah Schwartz, who, you know, at one time was like a real formidable you know, contender, but, but Randy Rouse sort of jumped in and really impacted some of her base and her fundraising and her ability to say, I'm running as the, the outsider here. And so, you know, we got like four sort of scenarios here. What's your sort of like take on what, where we're at right now as a, as a, as a member of the Democratic Party, as somebody who's been allied with Kathy and their supporters and you know, her supporters in the past? Are, are you worried here? You're nervous? What's going on, James? Well, I'm proud that in Galita we've done a lot of wonderful things. <laughs> but I'm, well, I'm we'll get there, James. Un unfortunately, <laughs> I guess we're not going to talk about that right away. Um, no, let's see. So um, it's going to certainly be the most interesting uh, Santa Barbara mayor's race that I've seen in in probably 20 years. Um, just to kind of throw it back to 01, um, it's it's really um, it. I, I don't want to say it's anybody's anybody's guess or anybody's ball game. But I think that um, while I would still personally say uh, Kathy is the favorite, I think that there are um, multiple candidates that are well, well financed, um, you know, have, st have strong support. And uh, it's going to come down ultimately to um, usually campaigns about raising money and walking precincts. And I think this one's going to come down to walking precincts because I don't think money at least in this race is going to be the determining factor. I think that um, the, 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 the major candidates, um, the, the higher profile candidates for mayor um, are not gonna lose um, with maybe one exception are not gonna lose because they didn't have enough money. But I think that it's gonna really come down to conversations at the door, uh, conversations on the phone. Uh, it's, it, this is going to be decided in the field. And so I think I think that is where Kathy, though arguably she has lost some support, she arguably still has the um, the opportunity to avail herself of a stronger field operation than anybody else. And as someone that has been uh, kind of doing the parry and thrust of uh, campaigning for a long time, um, field wins elections. And um, I think, Kathy has an advantage in the field. Okay. Now, you know, journalists like to think they know it all, right? They're, they're pundits themselves. Jerry and I- Sometimes have... wrong, but never in doubt, much like doctors. <laughs> right. Uh, Nick, Nick Walsh and I, you know, Jerry, we talk about this in various scenarios. Does James Joyce, um, can, he, can he win, one, can he cost Kathy to, to lose, 
Um, are we underestimating him? Are we overestimating him? You just talked about field work. Uh, the subtext there is Kathy's got a lot. James has much less. Uh, can you talk about his candidacy and how it plays into this overall dynamic here? Well, it's a little tricky for me living in, in Goleta for um, going on 11 years now to you know, have a really strong sense of his day-to-day uh, -day operation. I have you know, two next year, I'll have three jobs because I have to run for re-election next year. So it's, it's hard for me to, to sit here and objectively say, I know what James Joyce's field operation is. Um, I have a strong understanding of the party's field operation because, well, I walked yesterday with the party slate. Okay. So, you know, I have a sense for how many people are out. I have a sense for how many people are phone banking. I don't have that same sense for James. Um, you know, I, I watched the show called Santa Barbara Talks last week with uh, Darcel Elliott as your guest. And, um, you know, what I what I heard from her was that she knows James is out walking and has bumped into him in the field. So uh, I'll take Darcel's word for it that he's got a field operation. I, I don't know that he has the kind of field operation that the party has, um, but he's no stranger to local politics or democratic politics. Um, I know that he um, you know, used to work for DOS, uh, used to work for Senator Jackson. Um, he is... Um, not someone I would want to underestimate um, as a campaigner. He's been he's been around. He he knows the game. Um, he's been a part of it. But um, I just have a sense that um, you know the party has a really strong and experienced uh, field operation, and I still think that uh, Kathy has an edge for that reason over not just James over over anyone else. Yeah. So, so let's now talk about Randy, of course. So, so James and Kathy kind of uh, pull from the same sort of base. I mean, James is very much, uh, you know, he, as, as Darcel said, they came from the same school of canvassing and organizing and campaigning. So, you know, it's, it's you know, as Duraka Lermar would say, it's unfortunate that we've got these two competing against each other because they're very similar on the issues. And of course, they're different in terms of their leadership styles. But over here, you got Randy Rouse, who most believe if you're a party, Democratic Party person, is the real threat in terms of he's more moderate, some would say more conservative. Uh, he's been around a long time. And he's certainly not um, going to ever be a part of the Santa Barbara County Democratic Party. Uh, What's your take on him? I mean, he's got incredible name recognition and he's raised a ton of money. I mean, are we going to see our first sort of male mayor, in, you know, 30 years or however long it's been? I mean, how concerned are you about that? And I'm sure you know, Randy, you've crossed paths with him over the years. Uh, I, I would say I know him. I don't know him well. Um, you know, I've, I've been going to been going to Paradise Cafe for a long time back when uh, that was how I knew of him. Um, you know, the only time Paradise Cafe ever seemed to be um, you know, Randy ever seemed to be involved in local politics was I remember um, in 2010 um, when Meg Whitman was running for governor against Jerry Brown that there was an event um, at Paradise for um, for Meg Whitman when she was running. Um, that was really kind of like the first time I ever experienced Randy in a like a, a political way. Um, you know, and then he's been on the council however long he's been on the council. And, um, you know, I have more of a Galita impression of him, which is... Um, you know, balanced and nuanced, and we don't need to get into into that too much today. Um, you know, if Randy becomes mayor, I'm going to need to be able to work with him, and so um, I don't want to I don't want to say too much. 
Um, I'll say he's a formidable candidate. He's well financed. Um, you know, I've definitely talked to people who um, who know him and like him and are supporting him. And do I think that having uh, James in the race is not ideal from the perspective of a Kathy supporter? Yeah, it's not ideal. Um, I think that elections are becoming increasingly um, polarized. Uh, I think local elections are becoming more partisan. I don't think that's something exclusive uh, to Santa Barbara. I think that's happening everywhere. I think if you were to look at the literature and look at the media coverage, uh, local races, governor's races, congressional races, um, but also city council races and mayor's races are becoming increasingly partisan. I think that's just kind of the nature of our politics in a, in a world where increasingly um, through social media, we wear our identities on our sleeve, our virtual sleeve. So I think that voters are becoming more partisan. And so I think that even as um, some candidates will appeal to the idea of um, being nonpartisan, I think that appeals to some voters, but I think increasingly more and more voters than even four years ago when Kathy ran uh, for mayor the first time, I think there are more voters than ever that will take the word of um, the, the political party they identify with um, at face value. And so what I find interesting is um, there's not a, um, you know, there's, there's not a clear Republican but there's a clear, more conservative choice. And so how many Republican voters are gonna vote for Randy and will they be able to be picked off by Deborah or picked off even by James? Be, be interested to see. And you know, how many Republican, you know, how many nonpartisan but Republican registered voters are there that would care enough about climate change or some of the other issues that Kathy's been strong on that they would vote for her be, or just vote for her because she's the incumbent. It's going to be um, it's going to be very interesting. Um, I haven't seen a poll on this election that um, has enough detail that I could believe it and believe it's real, um, and certainly not recently. Um, I remember four years ago a poll came out that really kind of helped galvanize um, some of the local elected officials behind Kathy mm -hmm. when there was the fear of Frank Hotchkiss being being mayor. And uh, that, that ended up working out well for Kathy. I don't know if there'll be any polling uh, before this election that could have a similar effect. Um, what, I, what I feel comfortable saying right now is that um, regardless of whether or not you think Randy is a moderate or whether you th people think Randy is a conservative, um, you have an incumbent on the ballot. Uh, you have an incumbent who has gotten things done. Um, and I think that I think most voters care about results and they care about things getting done. And so I think it would be a kind of a fascinating conversation to have about do voters like the things that have been getting done, whether it's um, you know, progress on climate change, whether it's progress on uh, the rights of workers and progress on having uh, more construction projects done by, uh, by union workers rather than fewer. Um, you know, more tenant protections, you know, a just cause, um, just cause eviction ordinance. Um, you know, what are the things that are results oriented that voters are gonna care about? Uh, because I think if you're a results oriented voter in the city of Santa Barbara, you're either gonna really like this council or you're gonna really not like that council, right? And so it kind of depends on what you care about.
Yeah, well, well put. All right, let's. Uh, I'm not going to add anything to that. That was, that was really interesting. Uh, but let's let's talk about uh, uh, city council and what intrigues you about those races. Uh, we have Megan Harmon, who was appointed, never been on a ballot before. Um, perception is she's an incumbent, so she's got an advantage. Well, we don't really know. We don't really know how many people are going to vote for her. They got Nina Johnson against. You know, she's this. Uh, Longtime city employee, and she's got a lot of support and name recognition. Do you have any thoughts there on that that contest? I mean, how do you analyze that from a from a p- political consultant perspective? Pundit, someone's never been on the ballot, but she's been in office. What are, what are the factors when thinking about who's going to come out ahead here? Well, you know, it's you you bring up Megan, so you know, Megan is a, a really interesting case, right? So um, she came on the council. And you know, just speaking for myself, I kind of took a bit of a, a wait and see approach with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know her uh, very well. Others did. Um, I didn't know her as well. And I actually supported someone else uh, for the appointment uh, from a, you know, an endorsement standpoint. And so um, I waited and I watched. And uh, eventually what I saw was someone who turned out to be a strong voice, um, you know, in my opinion, a strong voice for working families. Um, you know, she supported what I would consider to be um, a fairly a fairly reasonable project labor um, or agreement uh, ordinance. You know, there's a lot of a lot of um, communities um, on the South Coast uh, throughout the state of California that have project labor agreements that are um, have a much lower uh, threshold. Like the Port of Wyneme, it's like I think it's like two hundred fifty thousand dollars and up. The projects have to be union. Um, other places it has a, a higher threshold. Um, but not a lot higher. And the fact that they did one that was at um, $5 million um, to me and only for, um, you know, trades projects, not like every time, you know, road work happens, but, you know, when it's the more sophisticated uh, projects that tend to bring in uh, subcontractors who oftentimes are coming from out of the area because we just don't have either the, the insurance, you know, the, the big enough to have the insurance or, um, you know, enough of the expertise. So they have to go out of the area for the subcontractors, you know, to, to be able to stand up and, and um, advocate for an ordinance that will ensure that that work over time starts being done increasingly by local workers. Um, I thought that was a, a really uh, important step and a, a brave step because I knew she was going to take heat for it. And she, she did it. And, and she, um, she turned out to be very strong on that issue. Um, when the food and commercial workers um, had a labor action, she stood with them. And then later after the pandemic, when they were on the front lines, you know, because not all of us can afford to do Grubhub and Instacart to get our groceries and our food. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks that work in, in grocery stores that, you know, during the pandemic, when we honestly didn't really yet know all the science about how the virus virus was transmitted and, you know, having to wipe down surfaces all the time. And um, they had to go to work. And, uh, you know, many times they were risking their lives and she stood up for them and said that when, um, you know, when the time came, she stood up and said, let's, let's give, give them a little bit of money to recognize the work that they did uh, during the pandemic when, you know, these are people that are not high wage people and, you know, a few hundred dollars means a lot to them. And it's, you know, the difference between being able to put food on the table for themselves or not. And so I thought that was brave. And so, you know, kind of waited and watched and I've been um, pleasantly surprised with Megan. And after kind of watching for a while, um, when, when I wanted to work regionally on childcare, she was the person I ended up partnering with. And so far it's been a, a really positive uh, partnership. And I think 
you know, we talked about 2001 earlier and, and Roger Horton. Roger Horton was the first local elected official at a city that I ever remember uh, talking about childcare and daycare and early childhood education in terms of what a city could and should do. And, you know, here we are 20 years later and there's still a lot of opportunities for improvement in terms of how cities approach these issues. And the fact that she's been not only willing, but excited to partner uh, with another jurisdiction to get some things done on that has been um, a really positive thing. So um, I have a lot of respect for Megan. Uh, the fact that she was able to get an appointment from the governor to the California Coastal Commission, um, that's a really big deal. Uh, that's a really big deal for Goleta. You know, Goleta Beach, um, the fact that um, the, um, the city of Goleta currently doesn't have a, a local coastal plan that's been approved by the state, that's going to go through the planning commission, the, the coastal commission. And so having, having someone close who's from close by who I can have a conversation with about Galita Beach, who I can have a conversation with about our local coastal plan is incredibly important. And if she were to not get reelected, the odds are the way coastal commission appointments go, um, that appointment, if she were to lose, lose reelection, the Coastal Commission appointment would probably go to someone from out of the area. And so we would lose some influence on how, how local coastal issues are managed. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, she's been, I've called her jokingly the, the new Doss Williams, only because, you know, when Doss arrived, it was like, who is this person and why do they want to do everything so quickly? And he got quoted a lot, you know, he was like, got a big media, you know, he got a lot of attention from the media and she gets the same thing, a lot of attention from the both results oriented people. Yeah. You know, and, and, so and, I don't, and have a propensity to, to get results. Yeah. You know, and so it is sort of this um, surprise, you know, cause at least I didn't know who she was before she interviewed that day. I'm like, everybody thought it was, you know, the candidate you supported, everyone thought she was going to get it. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, the whole thing is shifting here. So what you're saying is you think she's going to get reelected. Is that fair, James? <laughs> I, I've been walking neighborhoods and I like her chances. Okay. All right. And so then we have um, <clears throat> this other really intriguing scenario where you got Barrett Reed, who is well-funded and uh, you know, he's, 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 he's very likable. He's a nice guy. He, you know, he doesn't come across as some big mean developer who wants to build Santa Barbara, you know, a bunch of towers everywhere. He doesn't come across like that. He comes across as a nice guy, family guy, local guy who grew up here. He pushes adaptive reuse. He, you know, he says he hasn't added a single square foot of building, you know, to this town. Um, but he is supported by the development community very heavily. And he's taken on incumbent Kristen Sneddon, who in her own story is this amazing story because she kind of did not come up through the party. She came up as this community member, you know, Star King, Peabody, this mom, she grew up here, very, you know, teacher, just kind of this Santa Barbara person. And then she wins and now she is embraced by the party. But do you have any thoughts on that? Any reason to be concerned if you're a part Democratic Party person here that money is going to win the seat? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on that race. Um, <laughs> I think the question is going to be, uh, which ones do I voice and which ones do I keep to myself? Um, I'll, I'll say it like this, as, as someone who um, who worked in Santa Barbara politics for a long time and helped uh, elect um, you know, Democrats that had uh, different types of views, uh, people like uh, Roger Horton, people like Brian Barnwell, um, people that were seen as progressive, but also sensible, um, you know, they, they always 
they were people that I think were were very much um, kind of the essence of kind of you know, suburban, more moderate Santa Barbara, right? These were people that that wanted housing, um, but they didn't want to harm the unique character of Santa Barbara by overdeveloping or putting, as Dan Secord used to always say, it, the wrong things in the wrong places. And I think that um, what I find so fascinating about this race is, you know, um, you know, in Goleta, we talk a lot about development um, now uh, in terms of not wanting too much development and having you know balanced approach to growth. And in Santa Barbara, that's how campaigns used to be for a long time. It was about trying to find people that would bring that sense of balance. And I think that Kristen uh, really uh, kind of embodies that that sense of balance. She she hasn't been anti-housing. She's been uh, for housing that she thinks uh, makes sense. She's been for housing that um, fits with the character of Santa Barbara. Um, she's been a strong advocate for more affordable housing. And when she's been put to the test, she's supported affordable housing. You know, sometimes people say they're for affordable housing until, you know, they have a chance to vote for it and then they find a reason not to. And that hasn't been my experience with Kristen. Uh, I can't say I've agreed with, you know, every vote that I'm aware of um, when it comes to comes to her on housing. But I think it's, you know, you, ha you have to know she has a really clear uh, worldview when it comes to housing and growth. And what's so interesting is you used to have these campaigns that were about what's the right amount of growth. And oftentimes developers were kind of vilified. And uh, we still see that in, in some campaigns. And now here you have a race where it's an actual developer running. And I don't know if I've ever actually seen a developer run uh, for local office before. I've seen people who got a lot of support um, from developers and development interests, but I've never actually seen a developer themselves run. So, you know, I think in some ways this is going to be, um, this is going to be a really interesting, interesting test of whether or not a developer can get elected in local politics. And, and if Barrett Reed wins, um, what will that mean for the future of development in this community? Will we see a lot more growth and development or will we see more of a balanced approach? I think a lot's on the line um, in, in that particular race. I think, I think Kristen Snedden, if you were to, you know, I'm putting on kind of my political consultant hat here, but you know, if I were to try and kind of dream up a candidate for that district, from what I know of that district, that candidate would look a lot like Kristen, you know, progressive, sensible, um, cares about affordable housing, doesn't want to completely max out lot line to lot line every project, doesn't want to go too tall, um, wants things kind of right-sized for the community. I mean, I, that to me is kind of like a throwback to how Santa Barbara um, campaign candidates kind of used to be. Yeah. And so um, I don't know a lot about Barrett's uh, record on the planning commission. Um, I don't have the time to watch planning commission meetings in Santa Barbara these days. Um, I used to, mm -hmm. but um, it'll be very interesting to see whether an actual developer can win a city council race in, in Santa Barbara and in a district that I interpret to be um, not in favor of rampant runaway growth. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to see, you know, um, what's, what's going to happen. We're going to find out really soon. Let's transition now to the main event, so to speak, the good land, okay, um, where everything is uh, happening right in front of our eyes, where, where I hit congestion every morning at Stork, uh, 
and uh, Hollister, thanks to uh, your predecessors. No, <laughs> are we done with development in Galita, James? No, I, okay, L- let's make it about you, not me. Okay. <laughs> no, we can, we, can, we can talk about growth. Okay, all right, so uh, in, let's, in I want to ask you about Galita. Like, like yeah. what's, what's going on here that people should know about right now at this stage? You say, you know, Galita's going to celebrate, what, 20 years coming up? And, uh, you know, the, uh, people think uh, Santa Barbara is sort of like off on its own, but Galita's adopted a, a PLA. Right. Um, Galita uh, recently passed a a resolution in support of reproductive freedom like Santa Barbara did. So can we talk about what's going on in Galita and the issues that you're concerned about? Absolutely. And we also just um, actually uh, did a a ban on uh, flavored tobacco. And uh, that's going to really kind of rein in um, some of the vaping uh, that's been happening out there because you know, too much tobacco is getting in the hands of kids these days. Um, but yeah, a lot of good things are happening in Galita. You know, we, we are coming up on our, our 20 year anniversary. That'll be the beginning of February uh, of next year. Um, so that's a, that's a big deal. And I know that there are um, preparations underway uh, to find the the best way to, to celebrate that. And those plans are still in the works and looking forward to seeing uh, what we come up with. Uh, I think that there's a lot to be proud of. If you live in Galita, we've, um, We've, we've done a lot of good things. We've done a lot of good things recently. Uh, there is a lot happening right now that's visible. Um, there are still housing projects being completed that were approved back in, I think, believe it or not, 2014. So there's, um, there's a big project um, behind the, um, actually kind of next door to M Special Brewery and kind of nestled in that kind of high tech area where Raytheon yeah. is and, some of the other, some of the other uh, kind of technology businesses. There's a, a housing uh, project going in called uh, Cortona Point that is, um, I think it's like about, a, I'm going to get the number wrong, around 150 um, apartments. And it's being built in two phases. One of the phases is um, at the point now of, of they're starting to sign people up for leases. And then the second phase is still being constructed. Uh, in terms of where people might notice this, so if you're driving, if you're driving on the freeway towards um, Santa Barbara, and you get to Stork, you'll start to see it on the right-hand side of the freeway. You'll see the construction. Um, so it's it that the development's very close to the freeway. It's it's set back from um, from uh, Hollister. It's right on the railroad tracks. It's yeah, it's very close to the railroad tracks. That's very true. Um, that's just where the railroad tracks are. So it's it's very close to them, and it's uh, it's coming along. Uh, that project was approved, I think, six or seven years ago. Um, I've been working with the developer to see if he can uh, re- reserve some of the units uh, for family day- daycare providers, so that the residents that live there that have young children or the businesses that are across the street or in the surrounding neighborhood can leave their children there, um, you know, while they're at work. Um, so that, you know, that'll save a couple car trips and it'll also help increase the, um, you know, access to affordable, um, childcare in our community. And, uh, you know, John Price has been very receptive to that and we're still kind of working through some of the details there. Um, so that's happening. Um, so that project will, um, will come in soon. That'll be a mix of one, two, and three bedroom apartments. And it's one of the last kind of major projects that were part of the Galita general plan. So when that one's done, there will just be kind of, I think one major uh, potential project left after that, which is, um, it used to be called Willow Springs phase three. 
two parts of Willow Springs have been done. The final one that people call Heritage Ridge, uh, that one is in the planning process and will be coming to uh, the City of Goleta Planning Commission sometime in the future. Um, and that's another major project. That one will probably be more than 300 units um, if it ever gets built. Um, that's the last major project that could actually happen in Goleta without changing the general plan, without um, mm -hmm. you know doing something to pave over agricultural lands, which people in Goleta do not want. Um, they like the agricultural kind of small town feel of of um, of, of Goleta. So I don't. I think that if there's any real growth in Goleta after Cortona is done and after uh, something is finally resolved one way or another with Heritage Ridge, it's going to have to be kind of re, um, repurposing some existing space. Um, you, know, Barrett, you talked about Barrett Reed and adaptive reuse. It might have to be you know, adaptive reuse of some other, um, some other land use in order for it to get you know, significant housing after that. So it's going to be, um, as we move into our housing element update and the, the final um, the final steps for RENA, the regional housing needs assessment uh, process in Goleta, um, it's gonna be really interesting to see. I think we'll be able to get through this RENA process, but how Goleta can meet future state housing mandates, I don't know how it's gonna happen. It's, it's gonna be a, a huge challenge for Goleta. And um, I think we're going to have to have a big conversation as a, as a larger community about growth and housing and where housing can go. Mm -hmm. And what's that, what's that going to look like? Yeah. Is there, is there, can, can you rezone some of these commercial areas to have housing? I mean, if we know we don't want to develop in that swath of land uh, to the, you know, uh, toward the mountains off highway 101, right? Like that's, if that ever gets developed, I'm out of here. Like, forget, like, that we need that open space, right? Um, where can we put housing, um, you know, and think creatively? Uh, I feel like there's a big industrial area, you know, all up and down Hollister, all the way to Elwood. Uh, there seems like there's spots for for housing that aren't on agricultural land. Is, is that some of the conversations? Or? I think so. So, yeah. A huge majority of Goleta, like, like in, when I say huge, I mean like around 70% of the voters uh, supported um, Measure G 2012, which said that uh, it identified large agricultural parcels that still exist in Goleta and said that if you want to rezone those for housing, you can't do it without there being a vote of the people. So if you wanted, you know, you were, I think you didn't say Bishop Ranch, but you were probably alluding to Bishop Ranch earlier. I don't want to put it in anyone's, in anyone's mind, <laughs> but yes. Well, it uh, looks like I just stepped in it for that. So, um, you know, please, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll be careful what I say here, but um, you can't, you can't do anything with Bishop Ranch without the voters weighing in. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm not always a fan of, you know, zoning by ballot box, but I think, that Goleta is a unique community, and that um, if you want if you want Goleta to support more housing, Goleta needs to be a part of that community of that conversation. The whole city needs to be, and so I think I think for Goleta that makes sense. And so I'm glad that we have Measure G 2012 because it's going to ensure that um, you know if anything ever did have happen with any significant agricultural parcel. That that needs to be a um, 
a transparent process, that needs to be a collaborative process, that needs to be a community process. I don't want to go too far deep into this because it's not your expertise, but I wish there could be some coordinated effort between Isla Vista and the county and the city of Goleta to talk about how, and UCSB to talk about how the impacts of, of, of Isla Vista and students and growth and housing there impact in Goleta because it's this artificial line, you know, it's like, oh, Goleta County, you know, and El Colegio. And it's like all of a sudden, but if you've ever been James, like to, to, um, you're going to target, you know, like, like it is, especially during the school year, it's a sea of people and mm-hmm. it's, they're walking, they're on bicycles, they're on cars and they're not from the, like Alita. So like, you know, it's dangerous. You're like crossing the street and it's like, oh my goodness. And I just, I wish there could be more coordination between how we grow between Isla Vista and the county, which is not the Goleta and the city of Goleta, because it is quite, I mean, just, just spend some time there on Stork in front of Target and Camino Real Shopping Center. And it is incredible, the amount of busyness and activity that goes on. I want to talk to you. Sorry, do you want to comment on that? Do you have any thoughts on that? I'll, I'll be very careful and cautious in how I comment on that, because we um I'll just say we're in dialogue. I'll say it like that. We're in dialogue with uh, the university and the county when it comes to um, the impacts associated with the students, because we have a situation right now where um, there's a a lot of uh, students living in hotel rooms. Uh, They're living in unincorporated area hotel rooms and they're living in Goleta incorporated hotel rooms. And that has a, a significant impact on the city of Goleta in terms of um, our revenues, because after 30 days, you cannot collect transient occupancy tax on, a, um, on an occupant of a hotel room. So that creates um, impacts on the city. Um, and I'll just stop right there, just saying that's something that would be true anywhere else in the state of California. And it happens to also be true in the city of Goleta. Yeah. Um, well, there's a housing. I'll just stop right there. There's a housing impact, rental impact too, because what happens, and I see it in my neighborhood, is students come in, they can pay, depending on where they're from, lots of above market rents for housing, because there's nowhere else. So, so if you're if you have wealthy family or you know you have access. You can go rent a house that could be rented to a family in Goleta for the market rate, but instead the these students can pay above market rate, and it really impacts the type of community that you have. So, it's no, it's 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 very true. Um, I, I think that regional conversations between Isla Vista, the county. Uh, Goleta and even Santa Barbara because you know, Santa Barbara has the airport right there. So I think we all need to be talking and we need to figure out a way to resolve some of these issues. I mean, um, you know, one of the reasons why I pay a lot of attention to what happens in Santa Barbara is because, you know, for Goleta to be successful, we really need Santa Barbara to be successful. And the, the better they can meet their housing challenges, the better off we are. Um, so it's important that we work well together and that we work regionally. Hey, let me ask you a question a little bit deeper. You mentioned childcare a lot, 
right? It's a concern for you. It's a passion for you. It's a, it's a political issue for you, but it's also a personal one. You know, you've talked about Roger 20 years ago and, you know, you two working on that. Can you talk a little bit about why this issue is so important to you? Um, so many candidates, they say the same thing, right? They talk about the homeless, they talk about the housing, right? They talk about development and, and these are important issues. You talk about the importance of childcare for working families all the time. And it's not, you know, Megan Harmon talks about it. You've been talking about it first and for a lot longer. Why? Why, why is this so important to you? Can you talk about that? Sure. So, and I'll talk about it from a couple of different perspectives. So, you know, when, when cities came about, cities had to deal with different kinds of challenges, right? So it's like, well, where can we put parks? Where can we put open space? Where can we put housing? Where should a hospital go? You know, a lot of planning considerations happened when cities were first happening. And most of the time, childcare, daycare, early childhood education in general was not a consideration. And the reason why is because what our workforce looked like in, in the city of those days was a very different workforce. It was a male dominated workforce. And so, um, you know, people that were caregivers were primarily women and most children got their early childhood education from that one, that, that one parent at home. So what's happened since the 60s and the 70s is uh, the nature of our workforce has changed. We've gone from being single earner, um, single earner driven uh, workers being able to um, bring home the bacon, so to speak, and the, the other, usually the, the woman being able to stay home with the child. And if there's an economic calamity, the, you know, they can go and work for a while um, to now a workforce where both parents, regardless of their gender, um, regardless of their gender identity, have to work. You know, we've gotten to a point as a society where not working isn't really an option for you. You pretty, you know, unless you have a, a certain economic uh, situation, you have to work. And so it's created this new dynamic that's been you know, I, I use the phrase hiding in plain sight. Uh, well, this is an issue that's been hiding in plain sight for years. And I think that cities are just now starting to come to the realization that how we plan for childcare or not impacts our ability as a city to be able to function well or not. And I, I wrote an op-ed about this in, um, I was getting ready to write the op-ed right when COVID hit. And I ended up uh, changing the op-ed to talk about the impacts of COVID. This was in March of, of 2020 about the need for childcare infrastructure. And, you know, right now we're having a national conversation about um, what, what we call human infrastructure, right? So you have the infrastructure bill at the federal level that has already passed the Senate and the House has been waiting to deal with it because they want to also deal with the human infrastructure bill, which is the Build Back Better plan, right? And the Build Back Better plan has the human infrastructure piece, including childcare. And so I think childcare is really having a moment right now. Um, I think it's largely due to the fact that Elizabeth Warren uh, ran for president and had a really strong childcare uh, program. And I think um, President Biden kind of took note of that and has adapted and shifted uh, to accommodate because I think he now has a better sense of the problem. So I think it's important for cities to um, to actually have zoning 
that is not exclusionary zoning for childcare, where if you want to have childcare in your home, in your business, that you don't have to go through a bunch of hoops. The state already has a lot of requirements to make sure that it's done safely. Um, so cities shouldn't do too much to make it harder. And so um, one thing we've done in Goleta is when we did our, our zoning ordinance update, our staff was already going to have some childcare improvements because that's where things were going. Um, I was able to work with our staff to kind of soup it up a little bit more uh, and make it um, a little bit more progressive to create some different incentives. Um, and we're starting to see that now. So there's a project out at the Kyrial marketplace that's going to happen. That's going to be medical office buildings. Well, if we hadn't done our zoning changes, it would only be medical office buildings. The way that project is proceeding now, because we did our zoning changes, they're going to incorporate uh, some childcare on site. And that's going to make the, the impacts of growth associated with taking a vacant parcel and turning it into offices. It's going to mitigate some of the impacts of that growth, because at least you won't have two trips a day for some of those parents having to go drop off their kid before they go to work and pick up their kid after they go to work. They can have the, their child right there. And if they wanna go check on how the child's doing on their lunch hour, they can walk over and uh, spend some time with their child. And I think that will be really a really positive thing. Um, I think that childcare is also being increasingly seen as an economic development issue as well. Um, and, you know, I would say that even the National Chamber of Commerce recognizes that. Um, and so I think the, the business community recognizing the importance of child care makes it easier for those of us who care about the, the social and um, kind of human interest aspects of that makes it easier for us to work together. Because I think there's sort of a new community consensus building around the importance of affordable, accessible, quality uh, childcare. The County of Santa Barbara just set aside, just voted to set aside $2 million of the, uh, the rescue plan money uh, towards um, stabilizing the childcare sector, towards um, ensuring that we stop the bleeding because childcare spaces have gone down post COVID. So if, you know, what I would say is if, if you want people to be able to work, you have to have the infrastructure for them to be able to work. If you want to have a workforce that can't have any children, then we can kind of keep going down the current path of not having a place to put your children and ensure that they're getting a good education, that they're being exposed to um, uh, good nutrition, having opportunities for um, healthy, um, safe play, and to be able to grow their minds that way and to be able to, to develop. Um, what, one of the great things about being a city council member is you get to be a member of things like the National League of Cities. Uh, in 2019, I went to San Antonio for the National League of Cities conference. Um, the city of San Antonio did a major, major early childhood education initiative um, called Pre-K for SA. And this was something that was initiated by, um, by Mayor Julian Castro. Who, who recently ran for president and was also recently uh, in Santa Barbara through the UCSB Arts and Lectures program. And what he did was he convened a, a task force of, of business leaders and uh, community leaders, and he asked them a question. And that question was, if you could solve one problem to help this community, what would you solve? And the business folks and the, the community folks came together. They met for, I think, six months 
And they came back and said, uh, early childhood education. And so they did a, a sales tax initiative, um, I think a one eighth of a cent sales tax um, for eight years to create an early, early childhood education program. And I got an opportunity to tour one of the centers. Um, I got an opportunity to see um, some of the, the outputs that came from that initiative, like an adaptive reuse of a shopping mall that was turned into a community uh, library and a community me uh, meeting space. Uh, through, through a public-private partnership. And so now you have a situation in San Antonio where they actually just voted to renew the sales tax overwhelmingly because the program's working. The cost of childcare is going down. The accessibility of childcare is going up. The things that should be going down are going down. The things that should be going up are going up. And so it's been a really positive thing for San Antonio. And there's other communities that are making positive um, impacts as well. I'm glad that Galita has been able to lead the way. I couldn't have done it without our staff. I couldn't have done it without the leadership of Mayor Paula Prodi and the rest of the city council. Uh, we've had unanimous support for, for these initiatives. You know, James, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your personal story, because I know we've talked about it in the past, but uh, you, you've shared a little bit about what it was like for you growing up. And I think you were raised by a single mom and some of the child care challenges your family faced. Can, can you talk a little bit about your own personal experience? Because I'm sure it sort of, you know, motivates you to some degree, you know, as an adult to be pursuing these issues. Absolutely. So, you know, I was someone that grew up in kind of that first generation of children growing up where um, everybody has to work basically, right? And so, um, so my mom worked. My mom um, worked as a medical receptionist, uh, first at um, Pueblo Radiology and then later at the Cancer Center um, of Santa Barbara, the Cancer Foundation of Santa Barbara. And so when I was growing up, uh, my dad had, uh, my mom and dad had divorced. My dad uh, went into the service, went into the, the US Army and was stationed abroad in Germany. Um, for, for some time. And so, um, you know, I was fortunate from the standpoint of I had grandparents who could step in sometimes, but um, not always. And so growing up, I needed childcare. Um, I needed daycare. And then as I got older, I needed after school care. And so um, that's really why it's something that resonated for me uh, as a public policy uh, matter as I got older. And as I started to uh, recognize that, you know, there are people who can affect change if they're given an opportunity, if they're in the right position and have the opportunity to weigh in on, um, on public policy. So it's been, um, it's been really rewarding to be able to work on an issue that was challenging for me personally growing up uh, because, you know, I was someone who, who had a lot of privilege. Um, you know, my, my family, um, my, my grandparents were, were, you know, fairly well off on both my mother's side and my father's side. Um, so I was exposed to certain, certain things and I had certain privileges, but, um, you know, I was also, you know, living with a single mother who, you know, was working on a receptionist salary and, uh, sometimes worked at night as a bartender when she needed extra money. So, you know, money was soft and tight for us. And so, you know, I, I got to experience some of the struggles that she had to experience. And so I can only imagine how much more difficult it would be for, for other folks who, who don't have some of the same kind of privileges, who didn't have a grandparent who could step in sometimes, um, who didn't have a, a trusted family friend that could step in sometimes. Um, it's, really, it's really an issue that affects all of us, um, whether we have children or not. 
because we all rely on workers. And so our workers need to have a place to put their children, but also, you know, if we want our, our community to be successful, ultimately we need people to be um, well-adjusted. We need people to um, have the best possible chance every day uh, to have a good education. And from everything we know um, from a scientific perspective, um, you know, those first three years are so critical. Um, the first five years are important, but the first three years in particular are essential. And if more of our children every day don't have access to the best possible services, they're going to have a tougher time as they get older, as they go into the, um, into the K through six system, as they go into the, you know, the secondary school system, as they, you know, think about things like college or community college, um, it's just going to be tougher for people. And so, you know, if you have information and you know that something can matter to people and it can make a real tangible difference in their lives, I think you have an obligation to try and make things better. And so I'm working with others collaboratively to try and make things better. And I'm really uh, encouraged that the county um, is stepping up, that the city of Delita is stepping up, and now the city of Santa Barbara is also stepping up. I feel like there's um, in political science, they call it a policy window. I feel like right now there's a policy window with the elected officials we have locally where we can get something positive done for our children and youth um, to make things better. And I'm just trying to push as hard as I can to help ensure that happens. Yeah, those first uh, three years, five years, they're so important. I never went to preschool. Like I just, when I went to kindergarten, it was like first time I was socialized of which my wife reminds me all the time it shows um but you know it's so important you know it's just like the, the research the study shows that you know kids who do go to preschool kids who start earlier um perform better you know in, in a whole bunch yeah. of different different yeah. ways so it's great that you're working on that uh you mentioned that uh, galita banned uh what flavored tobacco with vaping and that's something not even Santa Barbara has done right so right. can you talk about why, why did Galita do that why was that an issue and why did you take that action so um, that was something that the county showed leadership on um, a couple of years ago and um, Galita was approached um, around the same time uh, to encourage us to do the same thing um, at the time the FDA was starting to look at banning flavored um, tobacco as well, and um, had already done it with cigarettes, but hadn't done it with um, other types of flavored tobacco. And so um, it was it was with our city of Galita ordinance committee for um, a very long time. Um, they they had it uh, they had a proposed ordinance um, in front of them for um, for I think well over a year, and then. Um, they kind of couldn't come to an agreement on what was the best approach. And so the ordinance committee brought it to the full council um, to weigh in. And so we had a really, um, we had a lot of community engagement on that issue. We had school board members call, we had um, kids associated with future leaders of America call in. Uh, we had um, tobacco lobbyists call in. Uh, we had people who wanted to ensure that we didn't include uh, hookah with um, the ban call in 
we had uh, a significant amount of public comment. We probably had, you know, for Santa, for, for Galita, you know, a lot, we had about, I think 20 to 25 uh, speakers and we had a number of, a number of letters as well. And, you know, ultimately for me, where I came down on that is, uh, you know, we talked about childcare and early childhood um, education earlier, you know, for me, the, the arguments that we shouldn't do this were outweighed by the fact that what I'm trying to do and what my colleagues are trying to do in the city of Goleta, and I believe regionally, is to really try and put our children and youth at the center of our public policy making. And at the heart of that is the health and safety of our children. And so what we're finding is that although there have been um, federal prohibitions that have led to, you know, Amazon not willing to sh uh, ship flavored tobacco anymore, the U.S. Postal Service not being willing to ship and deliver flavored tobacco anymore, it's still getting into the hands of children. And so even though we had local shops that, um, to our knowledge, were not selling directly to minors, uh, it was still getting into our junior high schools, into our high schools, into our elementary schools. And I couldn't, I couldn't sit there as a, as a policymaker and not act to create more friction and more barriers to flavor tobacco getting into the hands of children. And when I say flavor tobacco, I'm talking, I'm not talking about um, like bourbon flavored, right? I'm talking about packaging that is marketed um, in very provocative ways to appeal to children, um, very colorful, um, colorful packaging, flavors like bu bubblegum flavored. Um, the, the, the flavors of tobacco that were being sold and being marketed and being packaged um, really, to me, were a, a clear and present danger to the children and youth of our community. And I felt, I felt compelled to act. And so um, I, supported, I supported the ban. Um, what I'm really concerned about, I'm really glad that you, you brought up this topic, is right now the, the owners of the, the shops that sell flavored tobacco who um, are preparing to need to, to stop selling it, they can still sell cigars and other kinds of uh, tobacco products, um, have actually started circulating a petition that would stop the flavored tobacco ban in its tracks. And so they are in the process of collecting signatures. Um, they need to collect those signatures um, by early November. And if they can collect enough valid signatures, I think the number is a little bit over 2000 signatures, then um, the matter would get referred to council and we could either reverse ourselves or put it on the ballot for next year. And so at that point then, we would have almost a year of not being able to protect our kids where this would still be out there and it would still be getting into schools and getting into the hands of the wrong people. And I just think that's fundamentally wrong. And I really hope that people don't sign the petition if they see it. Um, I would really encourage people to not sign the petition. What is the argument for doing that? Like, what is the argument for, um, you know, these, these, uh, these businesses that are selling flavored tobacco, 
what argument can they make that this is a you know a good thing or that why should people not support a ban if we know that tobacco is bad for you and we know that tobacco products you know earlier in your life is are, is bad for you like what argument are they making that the Galita should not take this step well the, the first argument they made until it was contradicted was that oh well they'll just buy it online so why why should you use the why should you lose the the tax revenue? Mm-hmm. And so then when it was pointed out to them that it's been for all in, uh, intents and purposes uh, banned online because it's so hard to get it now online uh, because the the delivery services just don't want to they don't want to get exposed to the litigation and you know they're aware that the FDA is looking at at banning flavored tobacco the way they banned flavored cigarettes. Um, so then their argument really changed to, well, we have a really good track record of uh, when there have been um, when there have been, you know, kind of undercover operations to see if they would sell to um, to a minor or someone under the age 21 um, that they've passed those those situations with flying colors. And I would just point out that with the pandemic, there hasn't been a lot of those kinds of operations in a long time. And to me, it's really the wrong question. Um, the, the right question is, is this a product that we should have in our community? Is this a product that we should have that is so clearly marketed to children? You know, more than one thing can be true at the same time. The stores can not be guilty of selling it directly to a minor. And that person that they sell it to can still turn right around and sell it to kids, give it to kids, allow it to get into the hands of kids. And to me, the risk just wasn't worth it. And, um, you know, I'm proud of the actions that we took. Um, it was in some respects a difficult decision because I know there's other, there's other, um, other products out there that I think um, are tempting like flavored, you know, there's flavored alcohols and other things that um, haven't had as much um, public attention and public policy uh, work done on them yet. And we can have that conversation another time. But I felt like right now, this was the step that we needed to take to protect our children and youth. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't know if they're the same or not, but it's, I guess it's in the same world. Cannabis dispensaries. Can you give us an update on where things are at? Um, what do we have? Five in Galita? Um, I don't know. I know one opened up right near where I live, uh, near the Target shopping center. And it's um, not nearly as busy as the, the ones in Santa Barbara that I drive by, <laughs> um, you know, but um, what, what is the state of cannabis dispensaries? Are we getting, are people getting settled with those? Are you getting pushback at all neighborhood impacts? Uh, we're not, we're not getting a lot of pushback right now. Um, you know, when I, when I got on the council, um, the meeting, the meeting before my first meeting of the city council, uh, the city had voted uh, with the prior council to um, kind of settle some of the questions. And then it quickly became apparent um, after I got, um, got elected and started on the city council that more work was needed and that we needed to have a different approach and to go from less of a land use perspective and more of a business, business license perspective. And so through that process, we kind of revisited how much in, from a standpoint of dispensaries should we have. And so we went from having a maximum of 15 allowable dispensaries uh, to having a lot fewer. Um, I believe the, I think the final number was like six or, or six plus 
it's like six or nine, I forget, but I believe it's six. And we already had three existing dispensaries that were grandfathered into the ordinance uh, because they um, sell medicinal marijuana, which was allowable under the old laws. And so um, we're going to get an up update in the near future on cannabis um, and with a, with, from the standpoint of how's the revenue going, how's the enforcement going, um, but looking at whether or not we want to revisit some of the, the tax rates. Um, what I would say about um, Glida and cannabis is there's not a lot more out there from a, um, a retail perspective uh, than there than there used to be. It's it's um, largely the same. We have the the one uh, dispensary that opened up um, by Target, and um, I don't have any data on how well they're doing and or anything like that yet. Um, that'll come to me and the and the rest of council in the near future. Um, but what Glita has done is we've taken the approach that, um, you know, not, not so much to be focused on um, allowing a lot, of, a lot of dispensaries. And we actually went ahead and banned outdoor growing. So outdoor cultivation uh, is not allowed in Goleta. Um, but where we, but we, where we have been able to realize um, some additional revenue is through, um, through distribution. And so there are um, a, a few, um, a few companies that do business in Galita and they basically um, it's almost sort of like um, it's almost sort of like um, like, a, like an like an amazon.com kind of a thing, right? Where they have uh, sprinter vans and they take cannabis that's ready to go to um, other retailers and they go and um, distribute the cannabis to other retailers um, throughout the Southland and the Central Coast and, and other areas. Um, and so that's been um, a pretty good source of revenue for Galita. I think we've realized about, I wanna say about $2 million or so uh, annually in, um, in cannabis tax revenue um, by allowing uh, distribution. But we've, um, we've basically taken the approach that less is best when it comes to um, to retail, <clears throat> that we should have some retail, but not have have it like on every street corner, um, and then we've really focused more on distribution. So distribution, you mean like delivery? Um, that's what you're you're taxing the people. Well, well, not not just be clear, not home delivery. Uh -huh. um, you know, there's different rules uh, that relate to home delivery and micro businesses and and things of that nature, um, and there's actually. Um, a lot of prohibitions on what cities can do to govern and regulate some of those types of businesses. But kind of the, when it comes to dispensaries, we've been um, pretty aggressive in, in kind of dialing that back, but we've been more permissive when it comes to um, allowing companies to distribute cannabis to other retailers and other jurisdictions. I see. Mostly and, in the Los Angeles area. So didn't the state law allow outdoor cultivation if it were like a very few number of plants or was that indoor uh indoor oh, okay. um what what the state basically did was they said you can either follow the state law or you can or you can create your own rules and create your own cannabis program within certain parameters so for example um in the city of santa barbara i think you have the ability to cultivate um, one outdoor plant. I think that's, I think that's correct. I think you can cultivate one outdoor plant. Uh, Galita, you can't cultivate, um, outdoors. Uh, you can cultivate indoors one plant. 
but you can't, um, you can't do we, like, there's, a, there's a reason why you're not seeing some of the issues in Glita that you, you have in um, kind of the unincorporated areas by Carpinteria, uh, because we haven't allowed um, outdoor cultivation. So that we, ba we basically made a, a decision that we want to preserve our agricultural heritage, but there are limits to that. <laughs> And thank God for that, James. Um, um, that's the last thing we need. And City Galita is debate over odor <laughs> from you know mass <laughs> cultivation. Um, but hey, I'm going to freestyle a couple of things here on you. Uh, parks in Galita. Um, I remember I did a story a few years ago talking about how Galita was like deficient, like per capita in terms of number of parks and green space. Uh, you know, per number of residents, and Galita's made some some strides in that regard. You know, in terms of uh, trying to open up new pocket parks and new areas of town. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of green space in the community? I feel like, obviously, Gersh Park, which is privately owned, it's a ton of use. Okay, um, there are other sort of parks around town that that get use. Um, not a lot of parks in Old Town, not a lot of green space in Old Town. What uh, what can you say about uh, Galita's efforts to create more green space for uh, communities? It's it's a real challenge. Um, it, it requires us to have the revenue to purchase the properties to be able to convert them to park space. When, um, you know, one of, one of the good things about incorporation for the city of Galita was it allows us to, to focus on the things that are of local concern as opposed to being in kind of a, a sit and wait um, status, waiting for the county to get around to, to doing something for us, right? So, you know, closer decisions, local decisions, more input. It's been, so that's been good. It's one of the reasons why, you know, it took a long time, but we were able to get Johnny Wallace Park. Um, there's also um, one pocket park uh, in Old Town, um, really in the heart of Old Town, uh, but it's small. And so that's, that's really something that we have opportunity for improvement on. Um, the city as a whole is really at a parks deficit, but in particular in Old Town, we have a significant park deficit. There's, you know, kind of terms of art in, in local government about how much open space you should have per, um, per census tract. And we're, we're low. I, I won't get into the details of exactly how low, but, um, but we're low. And I would argue that there's even equity concerns based on how low we are in the most, um, the most diverse areas of, of the city com compared to some of the less diverse areas of the city, I'll say it like that. So we have a lot of work to do on that. Um, there's been some really good things happening in Old Town in terms of sidewalk improvements and parking uh, parking improvements. And um, you know, we'll be discussing the, the Old Town striping project in the near future and um, the possibilities associated with that. Um, You're not gonna do that back in angled parking idea are you please no <laughs> oh my goodness like, like over there in Cabrillo uh, where you have to back into the beach um you know they changed that over by the volleyball courts um, I remember they were talking about that in Galita so um some study so room. there's um <laughs> is this part being edited <laughs> I'm just freestyling James on yeah I, I heard that I heard that uh, <laughs> um so 
you know, we talked about this on the last podcast, right? So there's three uh, proposals for uh, for the Hollister corridor, right? And so one of them would be angled parking. Um, one of them would be essentially status quo. And another of them would not be angled parking. There would be no parking at all on one side of the street and you would have a really significant bike lane. And we haven't made any final decisions on what's gonna happen. And part of the reason for that is we don't actually have any money. So uh, nothing's coming anytime soon. There is a, um, an interim striping program that um, is gonna come to us at some point that might allow us an opportunity to kind of do a demonstration project. And so that would allow people to kind of see what it could look like if you had that parking and see what it would look like to have that much more sidewalk because you would get additional sidewalk real estate. Right now, if you're trying to walk down the street in Old Town, most places, if someone else is walking in the opposite direction, you're barely going to fit. And if you're in a wheelchair or on crutches, you basically have to like almost go into the street and get out of the way and let the other person go by you. And so we need to, we need to make Old Town more accessible to more people um, by allowing um, folks the ability to actually be a pedestrian there. Right now, the Hollister Corridor mostly serves as a way to get from one place to another or a place to kind of drive into, struggle to find parking and then get out of there. But it's not super pedestrian friendly and it's not super bike friendly. So the the angled parking is um, one of the options. Um, You know, if you look at the old photos of Old Town, angled parking used to be the way it was done, much like it used to be that way on State Street. Um, But you would angle in forward, not back in. Yeah. But um, you can, you know, in this, in this age of backup cameras, um, it's, it's actually getting a lot safer to do it that way. The advantage to the, the back-end parking, and we're doing this in some parts of Old Town right now where that, that parking actually already exists. Um, the advantage to doing it that way is if, if you're trying to put your kids in your car, if you're trying to put groceries in your car, you're able to do that in a way where you're sheltering them from the road. Whereas if you, if you park at an angle forward and you're trying to put the kids in the back seat, they're out kind of in the street, right? And so doing it this way is a little bit safer. And then if you're a bicyclist, it's safer because the vehicle that's gonna go back into traffic has a clear line of sight at who's coming in, coming at them from the bike lane, or if they're a confident cyclist and they're not using the bike lane, they're, they're going with traffic in the road as they're allowed to do, you have a better line of sight to be able to see them than if you were backing out into the street, right? So right now, I would argue that just being able to parallel park on Hollister is not terribly great for pedestrians. It's not great, really not great for cyclists. And it's not very good if you're trying to put your kids in the car or put your groceries in the car. Um, And so it's really just- I just tell my daughter, stand right here. I'm gonna put the car, the bags in the- back and i'll be right back i feel like i'm gonna drive through like old town coffee if i have to back in, into a space like it just feels sort of in, like would you back in in front of the trader joe's in front of the coffee bean and tea leaf and the you know on that side like that would be a disaster like what 
I don't, I don't sort of see with, with the busyness of old town, I feel like mm -hmm. coming out is great, but going in with slow traffic, I would think it would stall. Well, I, I think that's, I think that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. Um, we're, if, if you're, you, you kind of, you kind of can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You're, you're either going to make the Hollister corridor more pedestrian friendly or less pedestrian friendly. You're either going to make it more bike friendly or less bike friendly. And you kind of don't get a chance to have it both ways. Um, unfortunately, you can't always do that, right? So um, I don't know what the final decision will be, um, but I'm not going to rule out the, the angled parking as an option because um, what I'm seeing is if that's part of a plan to slow traffic down in Old Town and encourage people, because we're going to do Equifowler, right? So that's in progress. Um, there's going to be other ways to get in and out of Old Town than just going along Hollister. And we want to encourage some of the people who honestly, like me, used to like to use going through Old Town to get from Samita Gardens out to the marketplace and the Hollister and Stork. It's going to encourage more people to, well, if you want to get there fast, take the freeway. If you want to get there slow and have a lot of pedestrians around, go through, go through Old Town. So there's going to be a traffic calming component to this if two of the one of um, you know, there's two of the three options that have a traffic calming element and there's one option that's basically just landscaping and like some minor improvements mm -hmm. but two of the options would have significant uh, bike and pedestrian improvements and would change the way that part of old town functions as a driver and one of the options is basically status quo and so you know, do you want to have no parking on one side of the street and have wider sidewalks? Um, do you want to have a better bike lane and be able to actually get a net increase in parking? Because the, the amount of parking in Old Town is a problem. And if you do the angled parking, you can get more spaces. But the only way to do the angled parking and get more spaces is to encroach onto the two lanes in the middle lane. So there's there's currently five lanes there, right? There's four lanes, two in each direction, and then you got the middle lane. When, when this project is done, regardless of which option you have, um, other than the status quo option, you're gonna get a wider sidewalk at the expense of lanes. You're going to get better bike circulation at the expense of lanes. And that's gonna have the impact of, of slowing people down. And so, there's going to, and there's also going to, there's going to be a kind of a behavior modification element to that. Um, if people think they can still drive through Old Town at 35, 40 miles an hour, um, that's going to be danger dangerous for people, but you're going to change, you know, you're going to probably have a, a change in the speed limit there. You're going to have less of a feeling of openness if you're a driver, but if you're a pedestrian, it's going to feel a lot more appealing. It's going to feel a lot safer. If you're a pedestrian that lives on Gatto and you want to go down to um, go down to um, Santa Cruz Market, it's going to be a more enjoyable, safer experience for you than it was before. But if you're someone who works at Hollister and Stork and you live off Patterson and you just wanted to drive through Old Town like you always did, that's going to be a less pleasant experience for you. It's going to take longer. You're going to need to stop for pedestrians more. It's going to feel tighter. 
and that's going to be less rewarding for you. So there's, um, you know, the, the, the slowing down of Hollister is intentional. The, the widening of the sidewalk is intentional. The making it safer to bike is intentional. I, I think the larger question is going to be, do you want to have less parking in Old Town and have angled parking? Or do you want to have more parking in Old Town and have it be angled? I, th I think that's really kind of the fundamental uh, choice. And then there's other things that are happening in, in, in concert with this. So the Hollister, the Hollister Bridge improvements, uh, we just had a presentation on an update on the Hollister Bridge project. So that's coming along. Um, that's getting closer to construction. That's gonna be next year. And then there's the Equal Fowler improvements. And so um, Equal, which currently um, does not cut all the way through Old Town, it, it, you know, on the other side of the 217, like where Giordano's and all that is, you have Equal, but then it basically stops. It will continue from Kellogg. It'll start up again at Kellogg and it'll go all the way through to Fairview. And so you, you will have another wave. So if you live at Winslow, um, the Old Town Village project that got approved in 2016, um, that project, um, you will have the ability to, if you don't want to, um, you don't have to go along Halster. You can, you can get in and out of there another way. If you want to take Fairview, you know, go across Equal and get to Fowler, I mean, and, and get to uh, Fairview, you can. Um, but if you want to go down Kellogg and then get on the freeway, you can also. So there'll be more choices. There'll be more options. There'll be more circulation. Uh, there's going to be some roundabouts um, included in that project. Uh, right now, if you are trying to go into, uh, you know, go towards Santa Barbara and you live in the part of Old Town, like along Dearborn, you cannot make a left turn um, and go towards the 217 and the freeway. You have to make a right turn onto Hollister, go all the way over to Kellogg, make a U-turn at Kellogg, and then go along Hollister to the 217 and get on the freeway. And um, having, having those kinds of barriers to circulation um, isn't good for pedestrians. It isn't good for, for uh, motorists. It isn't good for cyclists. So we're doing some things that go are going to make it um, easier for people living in Old Town to get around, whether they're on foot or on bike. And in the case of the Hollister Village and Equal Fowler improvements, um, if you're in a car as well, yeah. it's going to make your, it'll make life easier as a driver if you are an Old Town resident, uh, but not necessarily um, some of the some of the projects that we're talking about doing, if we can get the funding, um, some of the Hollister corridor improvements will be less focused on uh, vehicle circulation and more focused on um, creating better conditions for pedestrians and cyclists. Yeah, and hopefully Galita continues to do a lot of Spanish language outreach because that very easily that project could very easily become one of what. City Hall wants and what planners want and not necessarily functioning on the ground what the community wants. So, you know, and that community of course is uh, largely Hispanic and, you know, I'm sure there's a large Spanish language component there as well. Um, that, that's, an, that's an important um, consideration. Um, our city has, has I'll say it like this, we've, we've taken steps to get better at, at Spanish translation and interpretation. Uh, to get better at Spanish language outreach. Um, we, we can and we have to do better at that. Uh, 
Um, but it's something that we're sensitive to and it's something that we're working towards, um, but we still have work to do there. Yeah, um, quick one more thing on Old Town is, when I was in San Jose, they did facade improvement programs so that the business owners could apply for money from the city to to not redo Old Town, but you know, or to redo redo East San Jose in this case, but just make the fronts of their buildings look more modern. Is that something Galita has thought about? Um, you know, one thing about Old Town is it's unique and has character, and it works for the community and the people who live there. So we don't want to change it you know make it like santa barbara or anything but um there's certainly some infrastructure repairs that could you know or, or maybe that's not infrastructure but there's certainly some some um improvements to the appearance and the facades and the fronts that could be done if they had the money to do so is that has that been on the radar at all to help any businesses with anything like that uh, that's something that the city uh, you know i i could be wrong about this so um so take this with a grain of salt yeah. But my understanding is that a number of years ago, um, the city did put some funding aside for facade improvements and some businesses took advantage of that and others didn't. Mm. Uh, I don't have all the details. Uh, I, I think we can all agree that if that did actually happen, it wasn't terribly successful, at least looking at the, the whole extent of the corridor. Mm. And so there would be opportunities to, um, you know, to improve that and to do a better job at that. Um, if that's whether or not that's something that's currently under consideration, um, I'm not aware of that. That's certainly something that could come through our um, our economic development committee at the city and could come to the council at a future date. Um, I think that's, you know, that's another example of um, there's a lot of things we'd like to do. We only have so many resources. Um, as a city, we kind of serve the public with one hand tied behind our back, so to speak. And that's because uh, we have a revenue sharing agreement with the County of Santa Barbara, where um, in exchange for um, being able to incorporate and become a city, uh, we have to give some of our sales tax and some of our property tax revenue um, to the county in perpetuity. And so that, that creates um, missed opportunities for us because we don't have as much revenue as we would have if we were Buellton solving, uh, which have you know, which were incorporated a lot more recently than say the city of Santa Barbara or um, the city of Carpinteria. Um, you know, those were more recent, you know, like Buellton was a more recent incorporation, uh, not as recent as Galita, but um, you know, the county has a revenue sharing agreement with us because it was the law when we incorporated. And so, um, you know, depending on the year, it, it tends to average about $6 million a year, which just to put into perspective would be about, uh, you know, more than a quarter of the value of our total general fund revenue. So it's, it's, a, it's a significant amount of money to us and it limits our ability to do all the things that we'd like to do. We're still able to do a lot of really wonderful things, but there's a, you know, there's a missed opportunity there um, for us, you know, and I hope that's something that we can um, address in the near future. And I know it's something that we've wanted to work on and have been trying to work on. Um, so far, we haven't been successful, but we're going to keep trying. I remember Roger Estevez talked, and others, of course, but Roger Estevez has talked about that quite a bit with the county. Is that a majority of the board of supervisors to approve that, or that is that changing state law or something? Why is that so difficult? It, it doesn't uh, seem right the, or fair. The, the individual. Years. 
The individual agreement can be can be um, altered at any time on any given Tuesday by a majority vote of the Board of Supervisors um, if the city of Goleta was also in agreement. So um, if the board wants to do it, the board can do it, but it takes, you know, it takes both sides to agree. It's not something where we just have an entitlement to it. Um, the agreement um, only has a required reopener under certain circumstances. Uh, during the COVID emergency, we had the opportunity to have a reopener with them on it uh, because of the economic conditions that we were in as a city. And so there were some conversations with, um, with the, the county. Um, I can't talk about it because it's a closed session thing, but um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's still a matter that's not resolved. You can't get Joan Hartman and Greg Hart and Doss Williams to approve this for the sake of Goleta. It's not, that's naive. It's not that simple. Well, Josh, I would say if you can ever get that Goleta Talks podcast started, <laughs> uh, you could have them on and ask the tough questions and maybe we can make progress. Okay. All right. Well, that definitely that question needs to be asked because that just on its face seems like not fair. I'm sure there's a whole county perspective on, on that, but 20 years later, come on, who needs it more? Um, it would be, it would be a wonderful birthday present if they would uh, agree to do away with it for our birthday. <laughs> um, I want to hit a couple of things. You know, we've been having a really good conversation here and we could probably go a lot longer, but for our audience, we should probably, you know, put an end to it here soon here. Um, can we talk about the reproductive freedom, uh, um, resolution the county did something Galita did something um, Santa Barbara did something you know whenever you do a resolution there's always this like well how does this affect our taxpayers kind of thing so can you talk about why that was important for for Galita to do oh sure um, it was um, it was something that had a lot of support um, in Galita it was a unanimous vote of the city council and it was just a resolution that uh, reaffirms that um, we believe, you know, that people who can become pregnant should have the ability to make um, decisions for themselves about um, about their future and about about their bodies. And um, it wasn't controversial. I think we had one public comment uh, that was a written comment, just basically saying, you know, why are you focusing on this versus other things? Um, I don't think there was a lot of uh, negative public comment at the county. I don't think there was a lot of uh, negative public comment at the city. Um, but, I'll, you know, I'll talk about it just from the standpoint of why it's important. And I think it's important because at a time in our country when I think it's 80% of people now support, um, you know, the Roe versus Wade decision, there, there is an emerging, emerging consensus that reproductive freedom is something that's important and should be res respected. And I think why it's important for local cities and counties to weigh in is because there's still a lot of uh, stigma and shame associated uh, with abortion. And so it's important for, um, for folks locally uh, to start conversations when they can, and a resolution is essentially a conversation starter. Um, but it's important for us to, to take actions that can um, point to the need to get, to get rid of that stigma and shame and to basically reaffirm for folks that this is something they should be able to do for themselves if that's the right decision for them. Uh, that is really nobody else's business but theirs. And they should have the right to do uh, what they need to do with their own bodies 
um, so that they can live, you know, a full, healthy and fully actualized life. And Galita did this before Santa Barbara, right? We did. Um, yeah, we, we did it, I think, in September and then the county and then later the city of Santa Barbara acted. And I, I you know, I, I appreciate Paula Prodi, our mayor, Paula Prodi, um, for supporting uh, me in, in the request. And I appreciate um, all, all five of my colleagues, you know, all four of my other colleagues, because um, we had a unanimous 5-0 vote um, for this. I'm, and I'm glad it wasn't divisive because it shouldn't be divisive. Um, you know, people should be able to do what they need to do and uh, make the best choice for themselves, make the best decision, I should say, the best decision for themselves. And the, the PLA agreement, Galita approved a PLA, is it 5 million? Is it the same thing as Santa Barbara or what's unique about Galita? It, it, it's, it's not the same thing as Santa Barbara. And I should preface this by saying that, um, you know, we're, we're not done yet. Okay. So, um, so Santa Barbara has um, two things. They have a, a project labor agreement ordinance that governs um, future projects. And then they have a community workforce agreement, which has a specific term of time during which that agreement is good. Um, what Galita has done so far is we've done an ordinance. And our ordinance is largely similar. Um, it has a couple of, of exceptions that are, that are a little bit different. The first difference is that ours um, while we chose a threshold similar to Santa Barbara, which was $5 million, um, we also added a, uh, an escalator component to the agreement so that over time, as, as things gradually become more expensive, you know, as there is increasing inflation, everything will become more expensive. And so um, we tied our PLA threshold of $5 million uh, to the, the California construction uh, cost index. And so over time, $5 million will become five and a half million, will become 6 million. So it, it will grow with the times. Um, the other thing that ours has is it has a exception in it for um, projects that are of important community concern. So if we found ourselves in a position where uh, an important city project had a really tight timeline where it needs to be built by like the end of next year or we lose grant funding or, or something like that, it allows the city to bring an item to the council for a vote where the council could identify a project as, you know, we don't actually want to include this project in the PLA. And so it's, I guess in some respects, it's a little bit more, um, a little bit more of a conservative um, approach to the ordinance than Santa Barbara's. Although I, I do say that uh, the city of Santa Barbara ordinance is, is very conservative. It's very cautious. I mean, I think $5 million as a threshold is a very reasonable uh, threshold for them. Um, in so in Galita, go ahead. That's kind of genius, right? Like, doesn't that pacify those people who are critics of the PLA? If you have an out that says, Hey, if there's some project that we need to get done, we're not going to tie it up with the stuff you hate. Um, you, is that, is that's not, I mean, something you wanted to do or you, you did do it, or, I mean, it seems like a good compromise. I, I think it's a good compromise um, as well. Um, unfortunately, I think there are people that have um, just really strong kind of pre preconceived notions of what a project labor agreement is or isn't. Yeah. And so, yeah. 
people kind of retreat to their respective camps at a certain point, and they're just, you know, dead set against uh, anything that would allow cities to be able to share construction work with non, you know, with with union uh, union entities. You know, we, you know, if you if you drive around Goleta, if you drive around uh, Santa Barbara, um, you really can't you know, stay at a, at a union hotel, right? Like if you go to other places, like you go to Sacramento, there's hotels where the workers are unionized. There's um, hotels where the, the work was done by a union. Um, you know, you can go to restaurants where the workers are unionized. Uh, we don't really have that here. We don't have like this kind of big labor, kind of stereotypical big labor stranglehold on on local uh, local government, uh, certainly not in Goleta, and I don't I don't believe in Santa Barbara either, really. And so, um, you know, to me, this is really just about sharing. This is about saying that sometimes on certain projects, not roads projects, not you know, not the Hollister Bridge project, um, but you know, certain projects where um, the community can really benefit from having a you know this kind of sophisticated, important project like a fire station a train depot, uh, the Goleta Valley Community Center improvements that need to happen. It creates an opportunity for that work to be done um, by local workers and, and local workers that are uh, in the construction trades in uh, with the building trades. I think there's a lot of a lot of misconceptions about what project labor agreements um, are and aren't. Um, you know, right now, projects in um, in cities are almost always done by, uh, by local contractors. But what the contractors don't talk about is when the projects get more sophisticated, when there's sophisticated electrical, uh, when there's sophisticated um, other considerations, they tend to subcontract out. And they do that for insurance reasons and they do that for skill-based reasons. And so you know, you'll hear some of these contractors come and they'll, they'll testify at public comment um, against project labor agreements, and they'll say things like, this is going to force us to hire union workers who we don't know, and they're not part of our crews. And what they don't tell you is they're already hiring people that they don't know that are part of their that aren't part of their crews, because they're subcontracting out to people in Sacramento, they're subcontracting out to people from San Francisco, they're subcontracting out to people from Los Angeles. And so the genius thing about project labor agreements is that it ensures that those subcontractors are local and it doesn't preclude any local contractor from bidding on a project or working on a project. So it's really a, a question of more is more, not less is more. And it's really about, fundamentally just about sharing. It's about telling our, our local contractors that you know sometimes on some projects, just some of them, we're going to allow union workers to be able to have a chance to. And I just, I just wish that there wasn't such a kind of an ideological um, kind of knee-jerk um, opposition uh, to these things, because they kind of try to create this perception that they're just giving all construction work to the unions and everything is going to be done by unions and there's going to be nothing left for them. And that's not true. It's just about fundamental fairness and sharing. Hey, um, just to wrap up here, you're up for a re-election next year, correct? Next year, and next November. Simultaneously, 
Goleta is moving to, to district elections, like like Santa Barbara. Yes. yes. So can you give us sort of just a little bit of a, a, a summary of what Goleta politics are going to look like going forward when you have districts and you don't have these, these at-large elections? I, I know that the stuff's being worked out now, but how will this change the city of Goleta to move to district elections? So Goleta will look different in the standpoint of it's going to be divided into four quadrants. Mm -hmm. And we don't know yet what those four quadrants are going to look like, but we know that they'll based on population, communities of interest, and other um, required considerations. Um, our, our city has something called a public engagement commission, and it's a group of, of local residents that make recommendations not only on district lines, but also on other important matters facing the city. And so they are receiving input from local community members. Uh, anybody in the public can participate in this, um, in this process. We're having our last district election workshop on November 4th uh, to help draw Goleta. And so I hope that people who um, are concerned about issues in Goleta and how representation works in Goleta um, will participate in that workshop. Um, what'll happen then is next year, the Public Engagement Commission will uh, consider different maps and they'll make a recommendation to the city council on what to adopt. And so then we'll kind of decide whether or not to just accept one of the maps or perhaps edit a map a little bit. But um, we'll basically vote probably in March. We'll probably end up voting in March on what the final maps will look like. And so then at that point, um, I'll go from being a council member who is an at-large council member and um, become a council member who represents a particular district. And so there'll be some issues that need to get worked out because council members live in different parts of the community, but some of them live closer to each other than others. And so over the next four years, that'll slowly shake out as um, the two council members up for re-election, myself and council member Roger Aceves, uh, face the voters. And then two years later, when uh, the other two districts have elections, wh whichever um, districts get picked. And just in terms of, of representation, do you think that district elections are, are going to help better serve the, the community of, of Goleta. Um, you know, Santa Barbara's moved there and there's Congress and there's debate and opinions and thoughts, but is this the right thing for Goleta to do? Goleta's not too small for district elections? Well, I mean, we could, we could argue about whether or not it's, the, it's the, the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but it's really more of a have to do. Hmm. And so my hope is that it works. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that representation is important. Um, our city council has, in its history, only had um, you know two um, two Latinx uh, Latino uh, members, uh, one who was elected, one who was appointed. Uh, we currently only have one Latino member of the city council, and that's Roger Aceves. Mm -hmm. uh, there has been a, a lack of diversity on the city council. There's also currently a lack of of gender diversity on the council. We have. Uh, we only have one woman, we have four men. Um, and the one woman is our mayor. So there's, there's a need to do better uh, when it comes to representation. And this is one approach towards ensuring that there is better representation. 
And so we'll have to see how the districts get drawn, but uh, this is an attempt to make things better, to ensure that there's a more representative uh, city council that looks like the people we serve. Um, I hope it works. Um, we are a small city. Um, city size is not a consideration for the Voting Rights Act. Um, and city size isn't a consideration for whether or not the residents of a city deserve to have a council that looks like them. So um, for me, it's less about whether or not it's the right thing. It's more about it's something we need to do, uh, we have to do, uh, we're going to do. Uh, I hope it works out well. Um, and I hope that we get, I hope that we get a, a council over time that um, is representative of the city and really moves us in a positive direction. Okay, James, great. I'm gonna cut myself off here because I could ask you questions all day. You're so knowledgeable and I really enjoy talking to you, but um, I know you, um, uh, we both got other stuff to do here, but thanks a lot, James. I appreciate your yeah. time and talking about the city of Galita issues and so much going on here. And you know, we, we, we gotta do this more often. We just talk about Galita, but your punditry on city of Santa Barbara was, was amazing too, so. Yeah, you know, I, you know, there was one thing I was hoping uh, to be able to work in um, and you know, you, you probably won't be able to work it in, but I'm, I don't know if you're still recording. It looks like you're still recording. Yeah. Um, you know, you've talked in the past about um, accomplishments, right? And you've talked about um, elected officials taking credit for things. And I, I, think, I think a really good conversation to have, if not now, then at some point is, what is the appropriate way for elected officials, whether it's the mayor, whether it's council members, you know, when is it appropriate for them to take credit for something that they voted for? You know, when is, when is something that they weren't necessarily directly responsible for something they deserve credit for because they ultimately have the authority and they're ultimately accountable to the voters on it? So like, I remember when, um, when you had Duraka on, uh -oh. you know, there, yeah, there, was some, there was some talk about the, um, you know, the, the light blue line, right? And so that was one where, regardless of whether or not the city council members liked the idea, conceived of the idea, agreed with the idea, the whole council kind of got painted with a brush on like, oh, they're prioritizing this over things that matter. And you had a little bit of a reaction arguably in how an election turned out, right? Um, and then you have people like uh, Nick Welsh now saying, oh, well, maybe they were right. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we needed that. Um, you know, and I know that this has come up, um, you know, Kathy has gotten some criticism for saying, um, you know, for, for taking credit for things like the, you know, the, the Citizen Formation Commission, um, you know, taking credit for other things where maybe, you know, staffers worked on it or, you know, maybe a particular council member was really focused on it. And, you know, I think that at some point there's got to be kind of that conversation about when is it appropriate to take credit for something when the voters are going to ultimately judge whether or not it was something you should have done or not. Uh, because I think that, you know, when you're staff, you, you know, you work on things and if it works out well, 
you're rewarded in the sense that you get to keep your job. It's in your performance review. Um, council members may or may not recognize you on the dais and thank you for your great work on something. Um, but if a project doesn't work out, if an initiative doesn't work out, generally staff doesn't get the blame for that in public, right? Like maybe maybe a business mem a member of the business community will complain about them and they'll want their head or something. But generally speaking, the people that get held accountable for it are the elected officials. And so, you know, there's sort of a buck stops here component to being an elected official that I didn't fully appreciate when I was a staffer, when I was like Roger Horton's intern or working for Janet Wolf, that, you know, I look at in a new light now because I'm the person that has to sit in the chair and speak into a microphone and say, I or, I or nay, you know, it's just a little bit different. And I think that that would be an interesting conversation to have. And I also think it would be good to have a conversation in the future about the different styles of leadership that are out there, right? So, you know, Catherine Rio is a particular kind of leader. Um, Helene Schneider was a particular kind of leader. You know, Harriet Miller was a particular kind of leader. Uh, Marty Bloom was a particular kind of leader. You know, and I think we all have our different ways of conceptualizing what leadership is and what leadership looks like and when someone is a good leader or not. I was thinking about this when you mentioned uh, you know, Ia, you know, and you talked about having battles with Ia over the years, right? You know, Ia was a particular kind of leader. Um, and I think a lot of people would say she was a strong leader. They might take issue with that kind of strong leadership, but they would say she was a strong leader. Um, there's different styles of leadership. And I think that Kathy sometimes um, is seen or conceptualized as not being a leader or not being a strong leader. And I think that there's more nuance than that. And nuance isn't always a good thing for politics, but I think that you know, her style of leadership is a legitimate style of leadership. I think it's more results oriented. It's more about um, identifying a need and responding to a need and accomplishing a goal. And I don't think she gets enough credit for being a leader. And, uh, you know, we've, we've all talked off the record to people that have been in closed sessions or been in open sessions with people. And, you know, they, they say things that they probably shouldn't, or um, they will, you know, follow the rules about what's open and what's closed, but, you know, kind of you know, draw aspersions or, you know, kind of cast doubt on somebody. And I think that that's tricky, right? You know, I think that, um, I, I think there's more than one kind of leadership. And I think particularly for women and particularly for women of color, they, they face a, a different standard, right? Like, um, you know, Megan Harmon is getting um, a little bit of credit now for working on, on childcare and no one's saying, well, she doesn't deserve credit for that because that was James's idea. And no one's bashing me for leading on childcare when it might've been Roger Horton's idea 20 years ago, right? But, you know, I look a certain way and I have a certain amount of experience working on things. And so I think that some people get the benefit of the doubt more than others. 
And I, I just think it's important for all of us to think more about, well, why is that, right? And I know we all have our, our own like conscious and unconscious biases about people because we've worked with them, we've experienced them in different settings. And so we kind of develop these notions about them. And I think that sometimes that seeps out into this in the public spaces in ways that, um, that make it harder for, for leaders to be effective and, and harder for them uh, to be successful. Um, and I know we're kind of now just kind of freestyling again here, just kind of talking, but I, I you know, those were some things I was, I kind of had in my mind at, at one point when we were talking like, oh, I hope we could get to this because yeah. I think this would be really good to talk about. And, you know, I just think it's kind of unfortunate that we couldn't get into in there, even though I know we talked for like two hours. <laughs> so we certainly, well, we're, we're we still talk on a lot. James. So you are still going to hear it, but, um, and I can okay. also sample this and, uh, Okay. Know, like put it on YouTube as its own sort of thing too, you know? Sort of oh, sure. But, but I mean, you, so yes, we're still on, we're almost two hours in. I think it's good. There, so there's some people who are going to want that kind of richer, longer conversation. Um, but I do want to sort of just push back because I agree with you on everything uh, you said. Okay. Yeah. Everything you said. Um, but I think that there's something to be said about a, a leader who shows vulnerability. And I think that's Kathy's biggest deficiency is that she could help herself a lot. Maybe she doesn't want to appear weak uh, as a person of color because people will judge her harsher, but she could help herself a lot by acknowledging some of the challenges, the difficulties, the problems she's had as a leader and using those as examples of but I have learned and I'm even better positioned in my second term to be a, a better public servant because of those things. Instead, I feel like she's talking to the most naive among us. I feel as though she's talking to the people who have no clue what's happening in Santa Barbara, but are just going to vote. She sounds great. Let me vote for her. And that's not a, like, that's true pretty much of most of them right? Like they all sort of some degree, just kind of just focus on the good stuff. And I, I, I think that Kathy would be a lot more likable if she could acknowledge that and people say, whoa, wow, she's a human being too, as opposed to, and then mm -hmm. we created the Community Formation Commission. It's like, you created yeah. it from massive public pressure from the community <laughs> over multiple meetings you know, give them the credit, you know, and I think that's sort of the, the concern, but there's no, there's no doubt that Kathy faces a barrier that the other can, you know, don't, you know, James faces a barrier that the other candidates don't, um, you know, and, and there's definitely a barrier there. I mean, I, I've seen Kathy with young girls, and I've said this before at events, and, and holy crap, she is so inspirational. She mm -hmm. is such a role model. These young women, these young girls look up to her and be like, wow, I can be like you and you're the mayor. She yeah. has a lot of really good qualities. I wish she would, uh, you know, just sort of, we could see the full scope of her as a leader. And that may be too much to ask of any elected official, but. Um, you know, yeah, let me, let me respond to that. Yeah. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I'll respond from the perspective of someone who has helped elect um, a number of women candidates yeah. uh, in this community and has helped elect women of color uh, in this community. And I, and I say help because ultimately it's them on the ballot 
and they have to succeed, right? When you're a campaign consultant, you can help. Um, you can even coach a little bit, but you can't, you can't bring them over the finish line. They have to succeed or fail themselves on their own. Women, women candidates face something called the double bind dilemma. And so there's this dilemma of how much should they brag versus how much should they share? How much should they be sweet versus how much they should risk being shrill? And, you know, all you have to do is look at the, you know, the studies and the research to know that, you know, we, you know, we can sit here as pundits and, you know, former campaigners and journalists and look at things through one lens, but voters look at things through a different lens because they don't spend all of their time thinking about these things and talking about these things. And every individual voter looks at leaders differently. And the risk she runs is if she, if she tries too hard to share the credit, she can look weak. If she tries to put others first, she can come off as not being decisive. And, you know, I, I can be a leader and be vulnerable also easier than a woman leader can. Um, in fact, I can probably get applauded for it the same way you were saying you would, you know, you think that if Kathy did it, she might, um, you know, get some credit for it. Um, I, I think that it's just something that exists. And I don't think it's wrong of you as a journalist or as a, a thought leader or an observer of politics to want more and expect more. I think more than one thing can be true at the same time. I think you can have a legitimate desire that's very well-intentioned to see her be that way. But the dilemma that she faces can also still exist and that it becomes a very real thing when she has to face the voters. And so I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying she couldn't benefit from finding a way to make some of these victories be broader victories. But I will say that there's more than 30 years of research out there. And I can personally speak to 20 years of experience working with women in elected office as both candidates and elected officials. And that research and my, my lived experience is that they are treated very differently by actual real voters and to a certain extent by journalists as well. And I think, I think there's something to be said for having a diverse perspective on that and being, being open to, um, to other, um, other perspectives on that. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no doubt about that. Um, and it's, it's nuanced too. Kathy faces a certain kind of lens that Megan Harmon doesn't. I mean, the, the things that, that Megan Harmon does that bring out these incredible reactions in people are, are very gender-based, you know, and it's like, you know, it's clear that the female candidates have to deal with certain types of judgment that male candidates don't, um, you know, and uh, the word ambition comes up a lot <laughs> Yeah, in a, in a negative, in a negative framing. Um, 
the, the beautiful thing about ambition is it leads to incredible victories. You know, the Civil Rights Act was an incredibly ambitious undertaking. And there was a lot of selfish reason. There were, there were many selfish reasons for people to support it. And there were selfish reasons for people to oppose it, but it was a very ambitious thing. And I don't think at the end of the day, something like that happening was bad because it came from ambition, right? I think that locally people being ambitious lead to big things, lead to good things, um, you know, and, and not just in politics. Stern's Wharf was ambitious. It's good that we have it. The airport was ambitious. You know, being in Goleta, you know, you have a little bit of a different perspective on the airport than if you live in Santa Barbara. Well, but I mean, about 20, it was certainly ambitious. About 20 planes have flown over my house in the, this length of this park. Right. <laughs> so I, I think that, um, you know, we saw this with uh, Doss Williams, right? He was... He was a young man in a hurry. He also happened to be a young man of color. Um, you know, when how was he treated? that, James, when you say that, there are people watching this who like cringed just hearing that you, you framed him that way because Doss, more than anyone, more than anyone that I've ever covered, faces this bizarre lens of he must be something other than what he says. And it is... It's phenomenal, like the, the, the hatred that people have of Doss mm-hmm. Williams for reasons mm-hmm. that are, are like, like, okay, so cannabis, okay. But before cannabis, people hated, a lot of people did. More people love him than hate him, but he has faced this, like, what is he really about lens for decades, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and yes, you know, it, it has to do with the fact that, you know, probably the fact that he is you know, Indonesian, uh, person of color, uh, you know, racially ambiguous, you know, people can't sort of figure it out. Right. And, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, there's a difference between, you know, conscious biases and unconscious biases. And, you know, these things are just kind of hardwired into people and it doesn't make you a bad person to, um, to have biases. Um, and to have unconscious biases. It's about learning to recognize them and just question yourself in a particular situation. You know, and just ask the question, would I feel the same way if, and then just, you know, apply that to whatever the situation is. There's nothing wrong um, with stopping and just asking yourself the question. Um, In fact, it's really helpful. But yeah, I mean, I think about, you know, you know, there was, a, there was another young, ambitious politician in our community at one time. His name was Jack O'Connell. He was young. He was in a hurry. He got in the state legislature. Uh, he turned into a very effective legislator. Um, and I don't know that he faced the same kind of challenges that a Megan Harmon or a Doss Williams faced. Um, you know, I just, I think, you know, I, it, you know, it's interesting if you look in, in other communities, there's people getting elected to Congress, getting elected to state legislature that are in their twenties that are, you know, you know, I think Doss Williams got elected to the Santa Barbara city council at age 29. I mean, there's other people that are 
in Congress that were 29. Um, you know, he, he wanted to accomplish some things. I didn't always agree with Doss on everything. I, in fact, I managed a, a county, county supervisor's race and he was one of the opponents. Um, you know, I, I, had a, I had a different idea of who I thought the second district supervisor should be at that time. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate to be part of a successful campaign. And, um, you know, and yet, and yet here he is, he's still working, he's still um, enjoying success. And, you know, I still don't agree with him on everything. And, and that's okay. Um, but I, I do think that ambition is not a bad thing. I think that people should have an opportunity to work in politics and want to have a career in politics. And one thing about that is the more you wanna make a career in politics, the more you really do need to be accountable to the voters and to the people that ultimately decide whether or not you get to get into office and stay in office, um, as opposed to just having a pre preconceived notion of how the world should be and just kind of blindly making the world move towards your point of view, regardless of what the voters may have to say and regardless of what the people might want. But, you know, that's nuance and nuance and politics don't always go together. Well, I'm glad, James, you are ambitious. I'm glad that you are a leader in your own way because uh, you certainly contribute a lot to the Galena City Council and uh, just your um, commentary on a variety of uh, issues over the years. I think we're all sort of appreciative of it. And uh, um I always have a good time, you know, enjoy talking to you and learn, learn a little bit. So uh, yeah, thanks for your time. And I'm sure I'll see you on election night. Uh, maybe you'll be out uh, celebrating, um, you know, hopefully from your perspective, <laughs> you know, and I'll, I'll be out there uh, reporting. So I'll see you there too. So thanks okay, a lot, James, good. for the great conversation. Thank you. Have a good Thank day. you.